Hello and welcome to DIT ON, the podcast brought to you by the Royal Naval Association. I'm your host, Jenna Brodie. Today's episode is on HMS Nottingham and when she ran aground in 2002 on Wolf Rock. Our guest today is Richard Farrington, who was her CEO at the time. Richard, welcome to DIT ON. I hope you're well. Yes, I am, Jenna. Yes, nice. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks, thanks for joining me. I uh, really appreciate it. So, Richard, you served for a whopping thirty-six years in the in the Royal Navy, and I've had some mm. amazing jobs. I had a look at some of the jobs that you've done. Um, obviously, over and above Sierra of Nottingham, advisor um, to the U.S. Central Command in Tampa, Florida, commander UK amphibious, captain surface ships in Portsmouth maritime battle staff captain maritime warfare center and your last job as commander of devon devonport flotilla was joining the royal navy something always on your mind something you were always going to do or how did you come across i was always going to go to sea mm-hmm. uh, i um my 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 friend and i built our first boat when we were about four years old um it was an old it was some doors tied together with lobster pots and things and um and uh, I remember my mother looking out the window and said, we need to get that boy a boat before he drowns himself. And, um, and I was always, yeah, I, w- I was very nearly a fisherman, uh, very nearly a, uh, a lobster fisherman. Um, but uh, the, the, uh, I think I'd always, I'd always dreamt of, of going away to sea and joining the Navy, but um, I didn't really care what I did so long as I went, I was on the water. But in the event, my father gave me, pretty good, good advice so you can always be a lobster fisherman um you know go and do the navy go and have an adventure um and um yeah I, I i have had the most extraordinary adventures and i don't regret any of it uh and i'd happily do it all over again and um but i'm always curious as to what might have happened if i'd just been a lobster fisherman i think i'd have probably quite enjoyed that too <laughs> could have had the best I think the great advantage of a navy is people Yes. Uh, a lobster fish was quite a lonely existence. Um, so uh, I think uh, I think I, I, I've had the privilege of being surrounded by, you know, hundreds, thousands of, of like minded adults. And, and that's been a glorious thing. Mm. And that is the Navy. It's people. It's nothing else. It's people. Absolutely. I completely agree. And in the in the 36 years that you served, did you have a favourite job, or I mean, there must have been plenty of highs and lows. But what, was, when you think about your time in the RM, what sticks out the most? I knew you were going to ask this question. I've been thinking about it for a little while, and you know, I honestly can't give you a um, uh, a, 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 a decent answer, except to say that every job presented me with new people, new challenges. Uh, and and those people were always, you know, to the last man and woman, you know, a, a fantastic bunch of people. And that's my overriding memory of my 36 years is faces, people and and conversations and uh, and silly jokes and um, and people doing remarkable things. And and, um, uh, you know, everybody pointed in roughly the same direction, mostly forwards. And um, brilliant. So it is, you know, please don't sort of pin me down. I can't (laughs) answer my question as to which job was the best because they all included just such a cross-section of fantastic people. And I think anybody 
who served would probably probably say the same. I mean, it, Nottingham was an extraordinary ship, and there were there are a lot of lot of the sailors on board that ship who who um, who asked to be drafted back to it time and time again, and that was a that was a fascinating phenomenon. But actually, of course, it just under it just underlines what I what I was what I trying to say here which is that it's about people mm. they went back time and time again because they like the atmosphere they like the, they like the way the ship you know it wasn't anything to each of us just were you know um holding the baton for the next person uh and and, and we were always you know so which wherever you went it was like that um brilliant yes there were some standout adventures um i think probably um you know, sitting at the top of the Kyber Pass, uh, looking for Osama bin Laden would be um, um, would be up there. Um, Wolf Rock uh, is right up there. You know, my first command, uh, the first time I drove a ship alongside as a as a as a young sub lieutenant. Um, you know, uh, entering Sydney Harbour for the first time. All those all those things are are, are events. But it's people that pin, that pull it all together, and that's why you know that's why we're still in touch with each other after all these years, you know, and that's why organisations like the RNA are so so powerful uh, and such a terrific uh, thing. You know that that old adage, "You can take the man out of the navy, but you'll never take the navy out of the man," is um, is true, uh, and I think we all owe a huge debt of gratitude to those lunatics at the careers office who decided that we were all suitable. I've no idea what my criteria were, um, but it seemed to suit me. <laughs> <laughs> and did you always want to drive? Did you always want to be? Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. All I, I would have been quite happy, though, if they just give me a bloody um, picket boat to drive. <laughs> The, you know, for, I didn't really care. I just wanted to, I just like driving boats, ships, anything. It didn't matter how small it is or how big it is. Uh, I just love ship handling. I love the way the vessel moves in the water. I can feel it. Uh, I feel the wind on my face. Uh, I, I know where the sea's coming from. I, I can just steer. I, you know, I've always loved that. I think, I think, you know, the sea's in my blood. And I think I started as a very small boy uh, on the water and um, I've never really come ashore. Uh, just to go a little bit off topic, that reminds me of something else. Um, you've been chairman of the Royal Naval Sailing Association. I have, yes. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I, I sail a lot mm. uh, and, uh, and I love it. And I think it's, um, I think it's a great thing to do. Uh, and one of the reasons why I'm particularly passionate about it, why, why, why I, um, when, when I was asked to be the chairman of, of, of Rensa, I, I jumped at the chance. It's because I think that um, sailing is the ultimate um, team activity. I think it gives you a staggering amount of life skills, um, communication, getting on with your fellow man, working together, uh, overcoming fear and discomfort um, uh, develops what I would term your your all-round radar. You've got to work out wh what's going on around you. And everybody has a role. And I've always loved that about ships. It's the same as theatre. When I was at university, I did a lot of 
theatre. And it's just like being in a ship. Everybody has a part to play. Uh, and in the theatre, it's the lights man and the, and the front of house people and the director and the actors and the sound man. They've all got to get it right at the same time. And they produce this amazing show. And that's just like being in a ship. That is very true. And it's just like being on a yacht. Yeah. And to get a sailing boat and to, and I do quite a lot of racing and I've always enjoyed taking people out and teaching them to race and teaching them to sail. And that whole business of, of just getting the thing, this, you're given this, this machine and you've got to somehow work out how to get it going as efficiently as possible. So, you know, my wife and I done a, do a lot of long distance sailing and, um, there's only two of us on board and so we have an autopilot to help us steer and it turns and so it becomes therefore the autopilot becomes the most critical thing on board we've got to look after it and to look after it we need to make sure it's doing as little work as possible a bit like a we <laughs> um so uh you keep it just you know you've got to trim the sails so that the so that the rudder is not working too hard if the rudder works hard the boat slows down and then and then the um and you get create drag and then the autopilot's working harder to control the rudder and so the autopilot wears out well i can't afford the autopilot to wear out when there's only two of us and we're in the middle of the atlantic so it's all about getting things in balance and 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 those are life skills aren't they and so on your on your yacht in your ship everybody's in balance you shouldn't have any one person any one piece of machinery working harder than anybody else we should all be you know supporting each other and working together and it's a it's a thing of harmony mm. and then you've got the and you've got beautiful flow of, of of air over the sails and so the boat you get you create lift and off she goes and it's a it's a it's a great uh, it's a it's a wonderful feeling but ultimately it's about people and teamwork yeah just like the navy yeah no that makes sense so just going back to to nottingham so you always wanted to drive how did the how did the assignment come around did was there a choice of ships that were coming no. up or just one no they no 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 it's nothing like that no you get allocated in fact i was um i was originally going elsewhere uh and i was going to at one stage i was going to edinburgh uh and um and and then my my relief in the job i was in i was in quite an interesting job in in the ministry of defense um and my relief um chap called andrew stewart was um was out in Sierra Leone um, on an op tour. And I think he became quite ill, but for whatever reason, he's, he's, he was delayed in, re in relieving me. Uh, and so I got slipped right. My, 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 my draft at, at Edinburgh was, was postponed. And of course, somebody else went there. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, when, when I eventually, then I got relieved and, um, and then, um, and then Nottingham was the, was the next one off the, off the block, if you like, mm. um, you know, uh, the, uh, I don't, I've no idea how the appointers, um, you know, well, I do have some idea because I've been involved in some of the kind of decision boards where they say, okay, we're going to send him here and her there and blah, blah, blah. And, and, and does everybody think that's okay? what they're trying to do is get a good balance of people and some people are uh are, are um you know talk for britain and do and uh and uh, others are, are real uh, technocrats and others are the most charming people on the planet and uh and and, and belong in you know 
in, a, in, in some kind of diplomatic role. And, and I think what the appointers try to do is, is get the right, the right chemistry, you know, they, they know their job. They're trying, it's a chemistry test. Uh, and they did well, I think, with, with Nottingham, they did well. Um, um, you know, and, and, and that's reflected in the fact that 20 years on, um, I'm still in touch with um, around 150, 175 of the 240, 250 crew. So they got that chemistry right. They found, they, they managed to put, you know, round pegs in round holes. It's a great thing. Yeah, absolutely. So you were to join in September 2000. Um... Yeah, ship was in refit, uh, coming out of refit. So that was a great thing to do as well, because you get the chance to start with a bit of a blank canvas in a way. Uh, you know, I think um, you know, when you take over a running ship, then you take over your predecessor's um, way of doing it, if you like. So we had a bit more flexibility there. Um, there was a there was a there was a core team uh, who'd bring, brought the ship through the refit, and and most of them would, would move on within the first sort of six to nine months, I suppose, of the ship running, and the rest of us joined. And I I, I probably joined about two thirds of the way through that big you know rejoining new commission of the ship. Um, and we took it to sea um, and sea trials, and uh, and then off um, uh, on on deployment. So um, and we had a couple of quite interesting deployments. We did the um, we did the, fa the famous safe Syria deployment with nine eleven in the middle of it, which mm -hmm. rather disrupted things. Um, and you know, there's 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 some adventures I'll not forget. Um, uh, just after that, I always remember. You know, I remember. You know, where were you on nine eleven? Is one of those kind of things that everybody, um, you know, my generation just about remembers where we were when Kennedy was shot. Um, and uh, well, I don't. I'm, you know, I don't really. I, but I do remember where exactly where I was, and the sort of nine eleven news came, um, and uh, and some of the bits and pieces after that. And we turned the ship round. I remember we were. Uh, I did a, a sort of a deal with the first Sea Lord. He wanted us to um, to spend to turn straight round and go back straight out. Uh, two deployments in two, two long deployments in two years, um, and because he wanted a ship to be in the Pacific, specifically to go to the Japanese Navy's centenary or bicentenary, some serious some serious event anyway. Uh, lots of dressing up. Uh, and um, so I said, okay, well, uh, we'll do that. On, uh, but here's my my terms are: um, uh, uh, I, I want to take the ship to Australasia to give the boys a bit of a, a bit of variety. If they're going to see the Pacific, I don't want to just go from uh, from Singapore to Japan. Mm. Um, you know, I want to. Can we do? Can we do a bit more? And he was very good, and he said, yeah, perfect. You know crack on, make it happen. And so that, that is roughly what happened. So we sort of went off, work up was brilliant, uh, really enjoyed it. Um, and, and then off we went. And there's a funny thing about the work up uh, and the trials and all that sort of stuff, um, particularly the sea trials. I remember we, um, we, um, we had some very, uh, it was a Type 42, so air, air defence ship. So anti-submarine warfare is never anybody's particular strong point, apart from the poor old POU um, uh, and, the, and the TAS apes. But for the rest of us, it was, it was you know, a bit of a distraction. 
So we did our trials somewhere in uh, somewhere off the Isle of, just north of the Isle of Skye, and then we had to refuel uh, at Loch U uh, on the west coast of Scotland, and um, and we were due in at eight o'clock, eight o'clock in the morning. Um, but because we didn't, we weren't, we managed to crack the uh, the sonar trials um, sort of twenty, nearly twenty four hours early. So instead of staying at sea overnight, I said, well, let's go alongside Loch U uh, the night before. We could, never, we, could, we, could, we could go to the pub. <laughs> um, so we did. Uh, and we pitched up with no tugs. And, um, and, uh, and, I would quite, and it was a glorious, sunny Scottish evening, you know, where the world is just perfect and not a, not a, not a breath of wind. And, um, and I think everybody except for the duty watch ended up in one of two pubs. And it was just monumental run ashore. All got locked in. And um, you know, and the following morning, I sort of you know staggered out of my scratcher to um, to uh, to go and say hello to the nice chap on the fueling jetty. And anyway, it was great run ashore. Two years later, we were in the South China Sea, and I think we'd just been to Saigon or somewhere absolutely monumentally apocalyptic as a as a run ashore. It was yeah. brilliant, Saigon. It was such an adventure, you know, seeing the, seeing the tunnels, seeing, seeing, you know, we, we, I remember that we had the sort of wardroom choir in the, in, in the hotel in Saigon where, um, where all the journalists went just before they, um, before they were all pulled out at the end of the, of the, of the Vietnam War. And we were in there in our whites all thinking we were officers and gentlemen, you know, it's just glorious. But anyway, Couple of nights later, I was sort of sat in some mess deck somewhere on board the ship, sort of having a having a, a quiet tinny with the lads, and said, uh, "Right, well, that was a good run ashore. Everybody's saying what a good run ashore. So, what's the best run ashore we've had? Lock you, sir." <laughs> and yeah, uh, and God, it was. Yeah. It absolutely was the best run ashore. I think the impromptu Why? ones are, it was, aren't it they? Was impro- yes, exactly. Yeah. It was impromptu, but it was also, it was also because we were quite an early stage of our sort of formation as a ship's company. It was the most fantastic bonding session, mm. and um, I've never forgotten that, that sitting in that mess deck and with that tinny saying, "So where's the best run ashore?" Thinking, you know, we've been to the most terrific collection of places. Lock you. Lock you. you know. By a country mile, <laughs> <laughs> and that's but that's Jack's humour, and it, but it's also true, you know. It's a, it was just a reflection of you know that's where we made friends for life, and yeah, that's what it is. Yeah, fantastic. And what when were you in Saigon? Then was that on the way oh, to? That was on the way. That was on the way to Lord Ham. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we went out. We went out east of Suez again, you know, uh, and um, and we did some interesting exercises. Uh, the five power defence arrangement, uh, and then some diplomatic visits. And it was all part of uh, the first sort of Sea Lord's great big plan to end up in Japan. Mm. We were going to. Ch- mm. we, I think we. Were, I can't remember who. We were, yeah, we were going to go to Hong Kong, and uh, and then we were going. To, I think we might have even been headed to Vladivostok. We were doing. We were going to do some pretty interesting. Pacific fringe stuff uh, with the added bonus of, uh, of Sydney and, uh, and Wellington um, chucked in to, to make sure that, you know, um, we had a bit of balance. Um, of course, balance, uh, balance. Uh, so, you know, we were, yeah, so we went, we went up to, yeah, so we went to, we were, we did, um, so yeah, we were the Singapore guardship effectively for a while. And then, um, and then, uh, 
because of the fire power defense arrangement uh, and, and you know the need for a bit of maintenance and that kind of thing so we're there quite a long time and then we then yeah we had a visit to Bangkok uh, and then uh, and then to Saigon you know, extraordinary going up the Mekong River and um, you know all these sampans and um, and uh, you know fishing stakes and um, lobster pots and of course and uh, and um, uh, every time I see a lobster pot, I think, oh, it could have been me. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but, uh, you know, terrific, it, you know, exactly like, uh, as you see it in the movies, um, and uh, beautiful, and the most extraordinary green, and, uh, and the humidity, and the, and the friendliest people you'll ever see anywhere, and, um, and this kind of massive humanity. I remember the, um, the um the uh whatever it was must have been a defense attache or somebody from the embassy anyway sort of came on board the ship as we sort of came up the river and gave us all a brief about how to how to survive in in uh in saigon and the, the biggest challenge is crossing the road because mm. not many cars millions of bicycles millions and um and so the, the very strict, the end of the really strict piece of advice, there was nothing about, you know, no go areas or, red, or the red light district or anything like that. The, the principal piece of advice that we will all remember from that visit was about how to cross the road. Um, and it is basically this, step out and keep going because they can all see that you're trying to cross the road and they will avoid you. Mm. If you stop, they will hit you. And it was just kind of, so again, you know, um, turning conventional, you know, uh, uh, Western thinking about how to cross the road completely on its head. Yeah. You know, you just wouldn't do that uh, crossing Oxford Street. But uh, whatever the height, the main, main drag in, in Saigon was called, and please don't ask, um, you know, the, the, the key to, to negotiating it safely was just to wander across. Just and, keep going. Uh, and the people, they could see that they were trying to get where they were trying to get to you were trying to get where you were going to get to we can accommodate this what a what a wonderful approach to life <laughs> yeah absolutely i've actually been to saigon when i left I, oh have you yeah i did a bit of backpacking and my biggest memory of saigon is i actually got stuck in a human traffic jam on the main drag where all the bars and restaurants were it was so busy and yeah. everybody was everybody's walking and you're going you know in opposite directions and at one point everyone just came to a stop and we couldn't move for about five minutes yeah it's so yeah. surreal and I, to be honest i got a bit panicked because i thought are we ever going to get out of here what is this but everybody around was so relaxed and just like oh yes. this happens there's too many people yeah. we'll just wait so we yeah, just exactly. stood and waited yeah. and yeah. packed yeah. with let people life, let life let life go on and yeah um, and my path will open up in front of me and all will be good yeah, I mean, you couldn't imagine that now with coronavirus being that close to that many people, but <laughs> how, how strange we have become. Mm. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, good. But it's a great, it's a great place. But go, so going back to Nottingham. So, mm. Cairns, you went to. Oh yes, that's right. Well, we were in the Philippines. Mm -hmm. um, and then we and then we headed south to to Australia and New, and then on to New Zealand. So Cairns uh, was um, for a fuel stop basically, mm -hmm. um, and good for me. I'd spent a couple of years at the Royal Australian Navy um, on exchange. So it, for me, it was it, it was 
and, and, and that changed my life, my time with the Australians. So going back to Cairns was a, was a not that I, I was based in Sydney and served in HMAS Sydney. Um, uh, but, uh, and I have hugely fond memories of that ship. Um, but Cairns is always a, uh, you know, just a legendary run ashore and place, you know, place anyway. So it was, you know, and it lived up to its reputation when we were there. We were only there for two or three days, I think. Caught up with some old friends, refueled, uh, and then set off across, uh, across the Tasman uh, to Wellington uh, was the destination. Um, so, you know, sailed from there on, I think, uh, I don't know, Friday, uh, Friday after Friday lunchtime or something, and um, it took us a while to clear. So Saturday was uh, Saturday before we really started to push out beyond the Barrier Reef and out into the Tasman. Um, so um, and we decided um, when we were planning the route, there were a couple of two or three quite interesting things to see on the way. One was Fraser Island, which is the world's biggest sand dune, uh, which is near Brisbane. Um, so we went past that, uh, and then on the way across, there were a couple of interesting um, features uh, on the chart, which weren't neither of them was out of the way particularly. One was uh, was Princess Elizabeth Reef, um, which is a huge coral reef which just about breaks the surface of the water, and uh, would have been quite an interesting place to to, to go and have a look at. And the other was um, Lord Howe Island. Um, which I knew about because there's, there's a famous yacht race there, which certainly I've not done. Uh, but my all my Australian yachty friends used to sort of um, told me that if I ever got the chance to look to see Lord Howe Island, it was one of the wonders of the world. Um, there's this extraordinary tropical paradise um, right in the middle of nowhere with these two bloody great mountains and um and just sticking out of the ocean and it's it's perfect interestingly if you go on the bbc website i think at the moment um there's a there's an art there's one of those little bits of video and longer read type articles about lord Howe island and and exterminating rodents from there trying to protect the, the extraordinary ecosystem um because it's got a lot of unique um flora and fauna Mm. Uh, quite, uh, quite, quite amusingly, my parents had a palm, a small pot palm in the in the garden, and um, uh, it's called a, kent a kentia palm, and they're quite common in uh, in, in garden centres and things. Um, they're grown on Lord Howe Island. Oh wow! Interestingly, uh, one of the uh, most famous pubs in Nottingham. Is the Lord Howe? Nothing That's to do yeah. with us. It's spooky as you like. Yeah. Uh, but we we almost had one of our reunions uh, in the Lord Howe, in the in the Lord Howe in Nottingham. But for some reason it it was changed. But um, but I have been in it as a pub, um, and he was from Nottingham. Now there's a the thing. That is spooky. Yeah, yeah. It makes the little hairs on the back of your neck mm. just sort of hook up a tad. But anyway, so off that was the plan was to um, and the plan was to uh, we would have gone past it on the sort of Sunday afternoon about sunset. So we decided we'd go around on the south and west side of it so that the boys would get a good, good photographic shots of, of, uh, of this beautiful place. 
um, you know, it, it was it, it wasn't out of the way really. It was it was pretty much en route. Um, and but as it happened on the uh, on the uh, on the Sunday morning, because um, we had a bit of a night of, of rough weather, mostly swell. It wasn't wasn't particularly uncomfortable, um, but it was uncomfortable enough that we had a lad um, who had had a, a chronic back problem. Um, he's a, a WE. He's too far too much time on his back. Uh, and um, he had he had a slip disc, I think, basically, and it had, he'd been managing it with painkillers and, and and life generally. He was a fit bloke, fit bloke. Anyway, um, he deteriorated, and the, I remember Doc um, Gareth Wilde came to see me in the morning and said, "We need to get him off. You know, what can we do?" And um, and a sort of quick conflab, and we oh, were right. Well, spookily, we could go to Lord Howe Island uh, because there's a flight there from back to Sydney, a uh, commercial flight um, this afternoon. Um, so we've made a couple of phone calls and. Uh, Thought we could do it so right wound on the revs and at the same time thought right okay well actually the best way to get him ashore is by helicopter uh, uh, but the problem was the helicopter was down for maintenance routine maintenance so there was obviously a risk that they wouldn't be able to put all the bits back together and get the thing flying um hence we wound up the revs and off we went um and we were going to get there you know in time by 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 ship but in the event the uh, flight did a cracking job and uh, put all the bits back and um, and it passed its check test flight, and in fact they they technically they missed the um, the flight by fifteen minutes, but the but the Australians held the flight. Nobody realised that Lord Howe Island is in a different time zone to the rest of the planet. Uh, it's half an hour different. <laughs> we hadn't worked that out, um, but fortunately, you know, the wonderful people at Qantas and on the ground at Lord Howe and in Sydney and everywhere just sort of bent over backwards to help us. So as a result, it meant that we were going to get there a bit early because um, we obviously wound on the revs. So we thought, well, what should we do? Shall we slow down uh, and go back to the original plan? No, that was boring. Um, here's a chance to uh, put the sh put a few people ashore. If the weather's right and if, if the opportunity arises, then why not? And we'll give, you know, we could put a small party of people ashore uh, and they'll see somewhere that otherwise they would never have seen. And more to the point, the rest of us could then claim uh, LOA uh, for an extra couple of days in Australia. <laughs> uh, so an extra five quid or something we were all going to get, and that was that was that was quite a motivator. Um, still would be. <laughs> so <laughs> I expect I expect somebody pusher to find a reason not to do it now. But anyway, that was so we thought we'd do that, and uh, and again there was so you know the the plan was gradually unfolding and originally the plan was to go down the southwest side then we'd obviously made this plan for when the helicopter wouldn't work we then decided to, well we've made the plan let's execute it anyway so i went in and uh and uh and, and round on the sort of you know, on the lee side so on the northeast side of the island there are a couple of beaches and a couple of little bays and an obvious place to anchor um, and when we got a little bit closer, we spoke to the um, the, the, the uh, sort of mari the, the effectively the harbour master, a chap called Clive Wilson, and said we're planning to anchor there. And he said, yeah, that's the best place to anchor. Um, uh, we'll see you shortly. So we went in and uh, anchored, and um, and uh, it was the EXO's turn for fun. So I sent him ashore uh, with a, with two boats, twelve people. And they uh, they went ashore basically into the surf uh, on that little beach, um, Ned's Beach, I think it was called, 
Um, so it was, it always reminded me of those sort of pictures you see of um, Captain Cook on uh, some island in Tahiti where, they, where, they, where the natives killed him. Uh, this wonderful long beach with the surf running and the boat sort of running in. Um, and they did well. They got the boys ashore and, um, and they all went for a walk round. And, um, and I remember sort of going back to my cabin and, um, and sort of, you know, I think I wrote, a, wrote, an, wrote an email home. And, um, and then a little while later, um, got a call from ashore um, from the XO saying, oh, well, they're all being awfully friendly here. And, um, and that we've been invited to the bowling club where the, uh, the whole population of the island has assembled uh, because they've been trying to get a, a warship visit for the last 20 years. And um, it turned out that the last warship to visit uh, was HMS Wolf uh, in 18 something or other. So they've been trying for some time to get a warship. <laughs> So, so he said, so, sir, um, we feel a bit churlish if we don't go to the bowling club for a, for a wet with the, uh, with the natives. And he said, well, of course you should go. Um, uh, but it's sunset in an hour, so we've got to think about how we're going to get you back. And because uh, we don't really, I didn't like the idea of pissed sailors in the surf uh, in rubber boats uh, in, the, you know, in the dark. I thought it was a recipe for disaster. So we got the books out. Unfortunately, quite a few, quite a few of the ship's company were aviators of the command team. XO was an aviator, ops officer was an aviator. Clearly, the flight commander and pilot were aviators. So there was no shortage of experience uh, and, and professional advice to look in the book, which sort of in the guide to sort of flying for, uh, for ordinary ships captains that sort of says, well, you can authorize night flying uh, for passengers who are not Dunker trained uh, in exceptional circumstances or, or, or for operational in an emergency. And so we thought, well, on balance, this is a sensible thing to do. It's about 500 yards uh, from the ship to the airfield. Uh, the issue is what happens when a helicopter uh, drops out of the uh, sky into the water in the dark. Uh, the sailors need to be trained. Uh, as to how to escape Dunker training, uh, a famous uh, institution and one of the best bits of training I ever had. Um, not a pleasant experience. And of course, you know, none of those guys who've gone ashore, apart from the XO, were Dunker trained. So there was a risk. But we thought that the bigger risk was trying to get them back on board a rubber boat in the surf in the dark when they'd had a couple of, couple of lemonades. <laughs> um, so we went for the helicopter option. Um, at the same time, there was quite a bit of pressure from ashore for me to go and meet the harbour master chap, uh, and so but I'd, I'd resisted. Um, but this, the helicopter option, suddenly gave an opportunity for for me to me to go ashore and thank the hierarchy of the island for all the work they'd done to help uh, get on an aircraft and and, and safely into Sydney. So the, we hatched a plan that uh, XO would come back on board and take conduct, and I would pop ashore uh, on the return flight of the helicopter. We needed basically three flights to get the 12 men back. So I could go in on the, uh, you know, on the second flight and uh, spend sort of 20 minutes or whatever uh, ashore and then come back out at the end. All quite straightforward. Um, so the plan, we, have, we made that plan and, and we knew what we were doing. Um, 
we came to execute it an hour or so later, and uh, by then the weather had changed, but the tide had changed, and the ship was starting to roll a bit at anchor. So um, we found that actually the flight deck was out of limits for the helicopter to land on. So we thought, right, okay, next change to the plan. Let's. Um, we then um, started to. We decided we needed to weigh anchor, basically get underway and make the ship more stable so that we could land land a helicopter on it. But we didn't want to get too far away because we had that old dunker thing. We didn't really want to fly. We didn't want to sort of bimble off in you know in completely the wrong direction. So we decided that we would. Uh, they'd run a racetrack basically just in the lee of the island in order to recover the the other the, the twelve men who were ashore. Uh, and um, so we started to weigh anchor. And as we started to weigh anchor, of course, it brought the ship round. Um, as soon as you started pulling in the cable. And so the ship then steadied down, and uh, it was good enough to get the helicopter with the XO on, on board. So he landed on. We said, right, okay, um, you have conduct. Uh, here's a bit of a handover. This is the plan. And the plan was that he would either, he would stay there unless the ship started to roll again, in which case he'd get up on the way and off he'd go and run a racetrack to recover the rest of the people and then bimble off slowly towards uh, Wellington. And, um, and, uh, and then the helicopter would bring me back last all straightforward i'm duncan i was duncan trained so there wasn't an issue about me flying in the dark um so good plan and well executed and off we went uh and um we took a couple of a couple of the flight with me um and we went ashore to meet um uh, clive wilson and the rest of the hierarchy of uh of lord how island um it turned out they were all seventh day adventists and they were teetotal so instead of a nice glass of Bundaberg rum, which is what I rather fancied, uh, we had tea and passion fruit cake, didn't you know? <laughs> it was very civilised and, uh, and they were lovely people and that was great. So anyway, um, but we felt after half an hour, we probably had stayed our welcome. So um, made arrangements to come back, um, called, you know, drove down to the little airstrip. Clive used his, the lights on his helicopter, uh, sorry, on his Land Rover to give some light light the airfield enough for the helicopters to take off and um and we got airborne and well, we obviously called the ship first and they said yeah we're ready um so we got airborne uh and saw the ship pretty much straight away so i thought okay well they must have stayed at anchor then because i thought they'd be further away by now but they weren't they were still quite close to the island and um uh, and we heard them sort of turn onto a flying course um which was sort of which was about about 90 degrees off the course to Wellington. That didn't really matter because we were only on, only on it for a short period. Um, bit of faffing about there. Um, some concern about the ship rolling a bit, but they were in limits, in limits, uh, landed on, yeah, all fine. Um, but I remember as we landed on thinking I could feel the island, I could just feel it, this, these two big mountains really sort of up above us. Uh, I thought we're quite close under here. And, but I was I was quite I wasn't particularly concerned and uh, you know then the officer watch called down and said I'm going to alter to starboard and um, back into the lee of the island so that we can fold and stow the fold the, the rotors on the helicopter and stow her away and I remember thinking oh I wouldn't turn towards the island I'd always turn away from it because I remember uh, you know many many years of, uh, of doing um, noise range running off Portland. Um, where the noise range is quite close in under the cliffs at Portland and you, you have to sort of run in and out of it and you start at about five knots and end up at about 30. And when you're 
screaming towards the island, uh, Portland Bill at 30 knots, um, doing the noise ranging. The last thing, you, the biggest thing on your mind is, is the bloody thing going to turn at the end or am I going to end up under those rocks? Um, so I always encouraged officers to, um, to turn away from the land if there was a choice. But anyway, it wasn't particularly concerned. Off that went, I, I thought, well, I'll get up to the bridge now. So I started, to, so I went and I went inside for some reason. I didn't go, I didn't go down the outside of the ship. I went down the inside. Uh, and uh, on the way, I met um, a radio supervisor, stopped and had a, I'm a communicator. And so he and I had a, a, a wonderful technical chat about grey boxes with lights and noughts and ones and things, um, which nobody else would have understood. And I didn't really, but he did, fortunately. Um, and uh, and then so that delayed me a little bit and then sort of started moving forwards. And um, I was outside the combined tech office when there was this shudder and, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a, no a huge noise like, a, like an explosion. And I thought the first thing I thought was oh, we've lost an engine. We'd lost an engine um, during Safe Surreal when we had to when we literally pulled ships off the wall to get away from some terrorist threat in in uh in in oman and we'd lost an engine doing that and it'd been it had been it had it felt all and felt like that they they you know gas turbines disappear up the funnel on a on a type 42 when they when they disintegrate so i thought it was that to start with except that it didn't didn't stop it was just like the it was just like holding on to the spin dryer in my kitchen you know, when you load it up and you haven't quite got your nicks in straight, and so it's unbalanced and it's done and it's shaking as it works its way across the kitchen floor and there's water pissing out or the mother shouting at you and blah, 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 blah. You know, it was like that. It was like a spin, literally holding onto a spin dryer. And I thought, hmm, this isn't the engine then. We've hit something. I thought we must, I wondered, and I thought we must have hit a container. It must be bouncing underneath the hull. I thought, well, maybe we've hit a fishing boat and it's bouncing under the hull. I couldn't think what it was. But anyway, by that time, it didn't matter because I was going at a fair old pace up to the bridge. Mm. And uh, it was about 10 o'clock at night. And uh, I think the wardroom had been watching a movie. And um, so that as I sort of climbed up the ladder to, to go past the wardroom, there was MEO jumping out of it. Uh, at this point, the, main, the bridge shouted, uh, you know, over main broadcast, close all red openings, you know, collision forward. Uh, so MEA was sort of coming down the ladder as I was going up it. Um, and by the time I got to the bridge, he he piped, brought the ship to emergency stations. And I remember getting onto the climbing onto the bridge, and um, and um, it was quite quiet. And uh, but it was light, uh, and the light was because the navigation lights were 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 being shrouded with spray, so there was you know green and red light loom like fog almost a spray and um and i said what the fuck's going on and uh and the navigator said uh, uh the officer works said i think we've hit a rock sir an uncharted rock i said i bet it isn't uncharted and the navigator said no sir i don't think it is uncharted. i think it's wolf rock and i the starboard bridge reading door was open and i stuck my head out of the starboard bridge reading. i said you're bloody right it is look it's here and it was i could see it it we were right on top the bridge was right on top of it and it was all the way forward to the gun and back to me. I said, yeah, we're on this. And um, I said, right, what, what engines, what, 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 what engines have we got? And he said, well, so the uh, port engine's running full astern. We've just shut down the starboard time. Right. 
stop the stop port, start and select the starboard time. I was concerned that because the ship, because we were, we, we, it was quite normal to run two engines when you were flying and then drop down to one engine for, uh, to save fuel whilst you were on passage because we only needed one. We didn't need to make 12 knots or whatever it was. And so one engine was quite normal. So they were going, they were doing all the right things. Um, but it meant that the engine that was the, the propeller and the engine that was closest to the rock was shut down and the port one was pulling the stern towards, you know, to, to starboard more onto the rock and yeah. I wanted to use both engines to pull her off and away I needed to get away I just felt instinctively that I needed to get off this rock I knew that it was after high tide the tide was dropping I thought I'm going to be stuck on here if I'm stuck on here um the way we were pounding on it I thought we're gonna we'll we will break this ship up and she will roll off and sink and where are we all going to swim to so I had absolutely no doubt that my first priority was to get off that rock. And, uh, and fortunately, down in the, uh, in the, uh, in the engine room, um, in, the, in the MCR where Chief Young was in charge, they'd, um, you know, when that first bit of, uh, that first collision impact and the, and the noise and the spin dryer stuff, um, Chief Young thought, hmm, Let's not shut down the engine. We'll just keep it in local control because I think the boss might need it again in a minute. God bless him. So what felt like hours waiting for the engine was actually probably only a few seconds while he put it back into, uh, into bridge control. And, um, and then it was a question of just trying to time it so I could pull the ship off. Um, and because she was just being lifted and dropped back down and lifted and, and not quite getting off and just lifting and 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 just I uh, and the noise and the, and by this time it's bloody bedlam on the bridge. Not entirely my fault. Uh, it was because all the well, there was water getting into all the systems everywhere, and so there were alarms going off, and all the bloody alarms went off on the bridge. So having gone up there and it was complete calm and quiet, my arrival heralded this start of bedlam. Um, and we were literally there cutting wires on, on loudspeakers, shoving socks into them, anti-flash, anything we could to try and calm the bloody thing down. And anyway, I had, I, had, I had to have about at least two goes at getting off. Because, of course, when you put the power on, there's a bit of a, a, a it dwells a pause while the controllable pitch propellers bite. And if you did it at the wrong moment, then you're pulling and you're just pulling the bloody uh, thing on the rock. So I had to try and time it so that the, 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 the propeller bit as the ship was being lifted. And I got it right on the second or third attempt. And off she came. And then she started to roll over. And um, I just remember thinking, I've got this wrong. Where am I going to jump to? Uh, where's my bloody life jacket? Um, how is everybody else going to get out? Because I thought it was going to roll over, but it didn't. It sort of came to a, a sort of drunken posture. It sort of felt quite a long way over. I think it was about 10 or 12 degrees list, uh, uh, lol, over to one side, uh, and well down by the bow, a very odd sensation. And, um, and I wasn't sure if it was going to keep going, but it didn't. But anyway, it sort of stopped there and sort of, and I remember um, sort of looking and, uh, and so I've been looking out, the, looking out of the bridge window as the rock disappeared. And of course, I had no idea where it was now because it was so dark. And uh, I remember looking back into the um, bridge 
and all these blokes looking at me. And what we're going to do now, sir? You know, that, that is the loneliness of Kabat. That's, you know, people say, oh, but you live on your own and you eat on your own and all that. That's, that's rubbish. There's a queue of people waiting to see you 24 hours a day and it's wonderful. And, um, and the whole thing about Kabat is an extraordinary thing. The loneliness comes. For me, it was that moment when I had to make a decision and that's where the buck stopped. And I had to make an instant decision and, and I've made it. Um, so it was quite straightforward. Right, lads, well, we need to, um, <clears throat> we need to lighten the ship, don't we? We need, to, uh, we need to ditch some top weight off the starboard side as top are rolling over. You know, so it was a question of, right, do something, do something. Do, do almost anything, you know. Well, actually, it was, it was, you know, it was, it was executing our training. It was exactly as we had been trained. Um, it all unfolded exactly as 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 we as, as we could have predicted. Um, so, you know, the buffer was, you know, trying to, you know, ditch top weight, and um, and then we were trying to get control of the ship uh, because, of course, all the systems had died. So the main broadcast had gone, the gyros had gone, so the compass was useless. Uh, you know, you, it was difficult to communicate. You couldn't talk to the end. We had to talk to the um, to the engine room on a sound powered phone, which, of course, in the 16th century was quite normal, but even in 2002, it was considered pretty old fashioned. Um, but we had a sound powered telephone and I could talk to Chief Young and I could, I think I could talk to the, so the young stoker who was, who was trying to uh, operate the Tyne gas turbine in manual control, you know, his hand on a, on a small wheel inside the bloody um, module. Uh, and, uh, uh, we had no idea where the rudders were because the rudder indicators uh, had all gone to start at 35. So, right, um, bosun's mate, tiller flat, off you go. Bosun's mate had joined the ship in uh, in Cairns. He barely knew where the tiller flat was, poor lad. But he found he knew where it was. He, he, he got in there. But I couldn't persuade him not to look at the rudder indicator. I said, look, you've got to look at the rudder stock. What's the stock set? Well, it's the, it's the, bit, it's the bit of the rudder where it, pokes up through the hull and, um, and it's just behind you. He's, but I'm looking at the rudder indicator, so it says starboard 35. I know it says starboard 35, it's broken. Tell me where the rudder is. And um, it, took us a, it took us a few minutes. I think Chief, who was the, um, who was the controls chief, eventually got in there with him and uh and uh and the and the uh and killick regulator but uh he was the so he was the, the normal courtmaster so he went down there as well and they helped the uh, the young uh, bosun's mate and um and they put the steering into hand pump steering and, and pumped the rudders back to midships in the meantime we didn't know where we were uh we knew where we weren't which was we weren't on the rock anymore uh, but we could just about see uh, the breaking waves on an island uh, close by. And so we had some orientation. And the ops officer, the uh, Wafu, had a brilliant idea. He said, look, he said, the helicopter's got a compass in it. Yes, of course. Right. So flight commander in the helicopter was telling us which way we were pointing. And then we sort of started to come ahead. And every time we started to come ahead, more water came into the ship because uh, although we didn't know it at the time, we'd sort of ripped off that bloody sonar. So all back to that sonar trials in Lock U. 
um, the most useless thing on the ship nearly sank us, which was that sonar. <laughs> I suppose it did have one good feature. It stopped us going too far onto the rock. Um, but in the process, um, we ripped most of it off. Uh, and so the dome became a sugar scoop. So as we pushed forward, as we, every time we came ahead, it just pushed water in through the sugar scoop and up into the ship. So every time I sort of came forward at about more than about two or three knots, I had MEO shouting at me, you're going too fast. But I couldn't go backwards very easily either. So we, we, we managed and we inched our way around uh, that little island, Mutton Bird Island, it was called. And I was thinking, right, okay, um, I need to beach the ship. I thought, if, if we're going to sink, let's sink in the shallowest water we can sink in so that we can stand on top of it. And so there was a beach and said, right, we're going to beach it on Blinkenthorpe Beach. Except when you look at the chart, the chart says it's all unsurveyed here. There's all sorts of uh, coral heads and, uh, and all sorts of bits and pieces. So oh, shit, well, if we suppose we try to run into this beach and we get holed up on some coral reef on the way in and never make it into the beach, that's not going to be good. Right, call the harbour master. Clive, <laughs> had a bit of a problem. <laughs> Got a bit of water coming into the people tank. Um, and we're thinking of breaching it on Blinkenthorpe Beach. I oh, don't do that, mate. <laughs> yeah, no, you don't want to do that. He said, the coral reefs. Oh, no, that's what I was thinking. All right, he said, okay. Um, he said, but you can get a middle beach. You beach it there if you like. Uh, that's okay. Uh, and the beach we were at was the northerly one. So there was there were three beaches, Ned's Beach, Middle Beach, and Blinkenthorpe. So Blinkenthorpe was the southerly one nearest where we were. So, right, okay. Well, we'll, we'll make, inch our way further north then. By the time we got off Middle Beach, um, the situation had stabilised sufficiently that um, so, so I had a talk to MEO and, and the EXO, you know, um, right, what are we going to do? Are we, you know, I'm thinking of beaching it. Do I need to? How long have we got before this thing sinks? And their answer was, well, we think we found where all the, we think we know which compartments are going to be flooded and we think we can, we think we can contain the flooding. So at, at worst, we think you've got two hours and at best we'll save the ship. I thought, well, that's good enough for me. I don't want to beach it because I knew if I beached it, it'd still be there now. You know, they would, nobody would have come and pulled the bloody thing off. It would have been a permanent memorial to, to our little incident. So I wasn't very keen on beaching it. So I was very relieved to hear that. So, right, okay, well, in that case, let's anchor it somewhere. And let's anchor it. Um, let's try and anchor it where, where we're going to be reasonably safe uh, and where if we do sink, we can still stand on the top. Yeah, okay, that's a plan. So we went back to where we'd started earlier in the day off, off Ned's Beach and managed to anchor it there. And we put all the cable out uh, because we knew we were losing power and we were losing auxiliary power and all sorts of stuff. And thought, right, well, we're going to be, might be here for a while and the weather's due to get shitty. Uh, so the last thing I want to do is drag. Um, so I put all the cable out. Uh, we were there for several weeks. We were the only ship that did not drag its anchor because we put all that cable out. Of course, it did help having about 1,500 tonnes of water in the front of it too. But, um, but it, yeah, that was a, it was a good decision to put all the cable out. So we did that anchored. And at that point, I managed to get down below to um, go and see what was going on. It was like bloody Dante's Inferno down below. Um, I went straight to HQ1, where it was nice and calm, actually. 
team were in there having a, a big bit of a conflam about what they were going to do. Um, and, and we were, you know, they were worried because what had happened, all the, the, the initial damage was all up around the gun, you know, as I could see from when I looked over the side and saw that's where the rock was. But in coming off the rock, we'd managed to pull off one of the stabilizers in the in the forward engine room, so about midships effectively. Um, pulled off the um, pulled off this stab the stabilizer, and the little hole was now quite a big hole where the um, where the stabilizer used to be. And so we had about 400, 500 tons of water in the forward engine room. Uh, and uh, the bulk, it was just, you know, the problem is that uh, those, those, those compartments are not designed to be full of water. So the bulkheads forward and aft were weak and were buckling. And there was significant concern that we might split one of those bulkheads and flood a second engine room. And those of us who'd studied the Type 42 knew that loss of two engine rooms, there are four engine rooms in a 42. Um, we knew that if we lost two of them, we would lose the ship. So we were pretty focused on containing the flood in the forward engine room. There's one engine room in front of it, the forward auxiliary machinery room, which has got generators and stuff in it. And then behind the forward engine room is the, in the forward engine room is um, Olympus gas turbines and lots of fuel polishing stuff. And then in the after engine room, there's the gearboxes uh, and the time engines. And then behind there, there's one more, which is another auxiliary, uh, after auxiliary machinery room with more generators and, uh, and other bits and pieces in it. Um, so, uh, so the forward engine room, um, holding that was was a was a critical thing we also knew there was an awful lot of water a lot of water up in the bows uh and around the gun and in uh in um uh, three delta mess which is just behind just underneath just underneath the gun above the magazine just forward of the sea dart uh, launcher space and the sea dart launcher was space was all full of water and the sonar space back in um kilo and around the fridge areas that was it. That was it. And the conversion machinery room, which was the, which was that was full of water. And that's why all these alarms were going off, because because, of course, a pusses warship creates uh, generators, create you know voltages, which which then have to be because all the equipment uses different sorts of voltages and currents and all the rest of the wiggly stuff. You need a, a conversion machinery room that takes the power out and then turns it into something you need. Um, so that was why we had all these alarms going off everywhere because the conversion machinery room was was dead, and so therefore we were on a bit of a bit of a tight timeline where we knew it was all sort of gradually deteriorating. Anyway, uh, so they said, right, we need to hold the forward engine room, but uh, you know we think we can't uh, stop the water coming in, um, and we think the water will stop coming in when it reaches the same level as the sea outside. Uh, makes sense, okay. Uh, focus then has got to be shoring up the bulkheads forward and aft a bit. Uh, but the other good thing to do is to try and get some water out of the front, uh, particularly three delta mess, you know, that'd be good for morale and we need to do it because there's uh, the two deck is a wash up in the bands. So anyway, I went forward uh, from the, uh, in the, in the, in the, um, in the, in the ship's junior eights dining hall, spare, spare kit and, um, and people, people all in the wrong clothes. Uh, in, in some people in practically naked, others wearing other people's clothes. And wh wh why are you in the wrong? Well, he gave me his OBC because mine are underwater. Oh, that was, oh, good for him. Thank you very much. Um, 
you know, and uh, and gradually mustering kit and gradually turning chaos into order. And there was a good team there. And I remember just outside the Junior H dining hall, um, in the co in the passageway on the starboard side, there was um, I came across the PO caterer, PO Caterer Mutima. Mutima had been on the Royal Yacht uh, previously, so his standards of cleanliness were quite high. And um, and there he was, and there was every bloody discharge overboard in a ship was being used. Had pipe had hoses clanged into it by this stage. We've been we've been we were two hours into the incident by this stage. So there, were every, there was just, you know, there were little pumps running everywhere. There was bloody, there was hoses everywhere. It was absolute chaos. Well, it wasn't. It was a well-organized chaos, but it was, but there was a din. And there he was by this Y-piece discharge overboard. And he had a bucket and he was catching the drips. I said, for fuck's sake. So there's 1,500 tons of water in the bow. Why are you worried about a few drips, Moose? He said, well, so it's captain's rounds tomorrow. I'm not going to have my flats <laughs> up for being, for being dirty, am I, sir? Yeah. <laughs> that. That's a sailor. That, that just, you know, that's just, I'm not going to be distracted by this, by this bit of bloody inconvenience, frankly. <laughs> You know, nothing is going to stop stop us from achieving our mission. That is sailors and ships. And I've never forgotten that moment. So anyway, I went forward from there, got to the forward engine room, and, uh, and that was a bizarre experience because you sort of, there was, just outside it on the, in the passageway there, they were, there was a couple of lads um, holding Petty Officer Benyon upside down. He was in his multifabs. And it was it was just draining out because he'd been swimming in there and he was multifabs and he was just full of water and they were all laughing. <laughs> and then I looked down into the forward engine room and you could go about three steps down a ladder and there was the water level. It was four foot from the deckhead. And uh, and the lights were still on and so it was and it was the water was brown because it was full of diesel and there was a couple of lads swimming in there. They were trying to get timber damage control timber out. And the other thing we had at that stage was we put, in those days you were taught that when you put a suction, a, a, an extractor pump, a suction pump into the bilge or wherever it was where you wanted to get water, you had to tie it down. Well, the problem was that we didn't have enough pumps and we decided that we couldn't stop the water coming into the forward engine and we need to get the pump out. But it was tied to somewhere down in the bloody bilges, about 20 feet underwater. So they pulled themselves down the rope and cut it so that they could get the, pull themselves down the hose, yeah. found the pump, cut the rope, lifted the pump out. And we redeployed it to um, three Daltoners. So I went forward from there and I remember I was just outside by the Oxford and there's a whole sort of human chain of people uh, and, um, and all with buckets, uh, all passing buckets up. And uh, somebody said, sir, do you think we're still going to get to Sydney because my girlfriend's coming out? I said, well, yeah, we, we probably will, but the timescale might change. Um, keep, keep, keep on with the buckets, lads. Uh, in fact, give me one. <laughs> and uh, what we were trying to do is we were trying to keep the ops room, the computer room, which is underneath the ops room, trying to keep that dry. There was about an inch of water just swelling about on the deck. And below that is the conversion machine room. They just shut the hatch on it. They just lost the conversion machine room. I sort of went down into the into the computer room and there was this one that was literally trying to get water out of it and stop it because we knew that if we lost the computer, it wasn't we weren't going to lose a ship, but the computer was probably the critical path to bringing the ship back to life. If without that, it was not a warship. 
and it would have been scrapped. And the boys knew that instinctively and they were absolutely determined that this amazing piece of kit was going to be revitalized, brought back. And, um, and this, this was the critical piece of kit. So they were determined to save it. And I remember sort of stood there and, um, and there was a little uh, electrical distribution center there. And as I stood there, there was this enormous bang and this jet of blue flame came out of the side of this, um, this fuse box thing. And, um, and what had happened was that seawater, we were below sea level there, seawater had forced its way through the electrical cables and up. And of course they were still live. And so where they met, bang, off it went. What was extraordinary in that event was that the lights stayed on and nobody got electrocuted in all that. And that's because of the amazing effort by the electrical team, um, uh, led by a chap who was a fascinating individual. Uh, he'd been in uh, HMS Coventry in 1982. And um, when she rolled over and sunk under uh, uh, after, uh, after the Argentines hit her. And um, he hadn't been back to sea in a 42 ever since because he was a bit nervous about it. And I remember the day he joined, he came to see me and, uh, and, and told me he was dead. And it was quite a powerful little story. And I said, and he said, um, and I said, well, do you want to be here? He said, yeah, I do. And I said, right, well, I want to have you then. Um, you know, and, um, and we'll look after each other and uh, all will be good. And it was, and he was a giant. And he was absolute giant on that night because he and his team, and uh, uh, he had a killing who was um, a, a, the driest and um, funniest uh, bloke uh, uh but very sort of understated and um and we never quite knew if he was going to punch you or, or laugh <laughs> but they were lovely people and by god they worked hard incredibly hard and they were so successful that they managed to as i say they kept all the lights on if that had happened in the dark i think we would have struggled much more i think it would have been a huge mountain for any young man to climb to go into a, a flooded compartment in the dark uh, and try and find a leak and stop it but as it was because we had no uh, we had the lights on but fortunately we had no main broadcast so nobody knew what was going on beyond where they were and that was probably quite a good thing um, actually because nobody quite only a few of us knew just how serious it all was and just how, and, and so those lads in those compartments, they thought that they were doing, it was them. But no, eventually they realised that, well, the compartments around them were full of people and lots of water, all doing the same thing. But for the first couple of hours, they thought, well, this is me, I'll, I'll sort this out and then we'll go and go get, get my head down and we'll be off to Sydney. No, it wasn't going to work out quite that way. But fortunately, by the time they, they could, by the time they realised just how serious it was, they'd got on top of it, and I think that was a fantastic thing. Uh, and so, you know, that, in that compartment, I remember, you know, the sort of uh, uh, Chief Stevens and, and Charles Chief Simpson, and they were they were they were absolutely saturated with diesely water because they'd been climbing in and out of it for hours by then. And, um, and, uh, and, but there was, there was, everybody was just in such good humor and they were just getting on with it. And I went forward from there up to the uh, forward section base and there they were in three Delta mess. And there was um, Chief Kendrick, who was the, um, who was the, uh, 
who was the chief stoker and sort of in charge of you know the sort of first aid fire, fire party type thing um and so he'd been in the thick of it right from the outset and there they were and and, and he looked down into the mess deck and there were these lads down there and um and they just realized they'd been trying to shore up the water was so powerful it was pushing up the um the uh the um the hatch from the um, the, the hatch down to the uh, magazine below it had buckled under the pressure of water and so they were and they'd been shoring it and they'd been shoring it for a couple of hours and they've managed to get the shoring in and the and the extra pump that they just pulled out of the forward engine room and chucked in there the water level was starting to go down and so you know right okay lads we need to pull you out of there but they couldn't get out because they put the shoring over the hatch in such a way that there was no room for a human to get through uh, well what about coming out the escape hatch well they could come out the escape hatch but we can't get the lid back on again after we put they get, they've taken them out of the escape hatch lid off so we don't really want to take them out of the escape hatch i'll tell you what lads um take the shoring off and start again oh all right chief you know, they just got on with it. And these were amazing because they were in there and the water was five feet deep. And most of them were, you know, a little bit over five feet tall, uh, but not, you know, a couple of giants in there. Um, but what happened was we realised that the bloody dockyard in Devonport in the refit had never bolted all the ship's lockers down. And they were held down by gravity <coughs> until they were afloat. And so <laughs> there they were in the in this compartment trying to shore up, put the put the shoring in on the on the on the hatch, and these lockers had all come were all afloat, and were crushing them. <laughs> so there were three of them in there. The, the, the leading hand of the mess was a local acting leading hand, and there was um, Petty Officer who was in charge. Uh, and and, and, and OM, OM, uh, he became a became a reggae. Um, and they were in there, and so he had an acro prop, an acro, an acro prop, and he was using that to hold off the bloody um, lockers, while the other two took it in turns to sort of stick their heads under the water and um, and wedge and bang in the wedges and get this sh uh, shoring in. Quite amazing. So anyway, they took the shoring off, they redid it. I remember going back there sort of three or four hours later and the guys were sitting there uh, in, the, in the mess square and the water was about six inches deep by that stage. They were playing uckers. Oh, wow. Absolutely sodden. Um, but they found an uckers board and, um, and life, was, life was pretty good. Amazing. Amazing. Anyway. I, I went uh, so I did, did, did some you know went went and saw everybody all around the ship and um and and uh, and and tried to sort of you know to to make a contribution and then and then um, and then we realized actually I needed to talk to uh, talk to northward we needed some advice on uh, on our on our plan for trying to stabilize the ship and obviously we needed to tell the grown-ups that um that um, Wellington wasn't looking very good uh and, and and in fact japan was looking even less good um so all that needed to be done and because the the comms weren't working anymore we couldn't we could you know we'd had to shut everything down you couldn't track a satellite with no gyro so we had to go ashore so uh, ian flew ashore and um and left the exo in command again and told him you know don't let it sink while i'm away it was basically what it, you know that was the handover it was not you know it wasn't difficult and we went ashore and um 
and we phoned uh, Northwood and Northwood were brilliant actually uh, and the guys at Bath who'd all turned up on a Sunday afternoon to you know put their heads together and they gave some good advice and then we tried to ring our wives uh, and Ian's wife wasn't at home but Julie my wife was and um, she'd just been warned off by my boss so she knew that something was that things were not good and um, it was quite a difficult conversation but <clears throat> I'll never forget she said well you can't um you can't undo what's happened but just think about this you will be judged on how you respond what a brilliant piece of advice that was mm. Mm. she was absolutely on the bun you know you know and god i'm still married to her um that was a great thing so we um I can't remember if we had another cup of tea or not. But anyway, we flew, flew back to the ship and um, and they'd and they'd managed to stabilise the forward engine room and they'd managed to get the water out of uh, most of the water out of three delta and um, and the, the Australian Navy had said right we're sending a Hercules it'll be with you at dawn and I thought thank God we didn't go to Queen Elizabeth Reef because we wouldn't have managed to land a Hercules on it um, and um, and so you know and my mates in Sydney had must you know, all the ships had been woken up. Uh, and they'd all, you know, mustered all their um, damage control firefighting kit, driven it all up to RAF Richmond, shoved it on a Hercules, which was immediately diverted away from doing, they were having interesting times with Indonesian uh, uh, migrants at the time. So the, Hercules, the Australian Air Force Hercules fleet was heavily engaged in that. And they just, without, without a murmur, diverted one of their aircraft to us uh, with all that kit on it and a diving team. Um, and, uh, and it was due to arrive at sunrise because the, the runway was only lit by Clive Wilson's um, four before lights. Um, so, um, so I said, right, I think I'll, uh, I, I, and I was just about to get my head down. Uh, I got a call from Clive saying, oh, um, oh, the press will be here. We want to have a press conference at eight o'clock. So I said, can we just delay it till 10? I need to get my head down for a couple of hours. So I did, got my head down. Uh, I slept quite well, surprisingly, and um, flew ashore for the press conference uh, in the morning. You know, so there was the Hercules, uh, and the boys were all, uh, the Aussies were on board, and it took us quite a while to move all the kit onto the ship. But they were just a, as ever, you know, new faces are always a breath of fresh air, and they were, and um, and it came at a really important moment in morale because the lads, our ship's company, realised that there was help at hand and. And that it all was going to work out, and um, and they were, we were all still alive, and um, and um, you know things could have been an awful lot worse. Mm. So there was a generally upbeat mood when I went ashore for the for the press conference, and um, of course landed there, and money um, light aircraft all over the place, and uh, never seen anything like it. Um, and uh, it's a big pile of journalists, and um, so I sort of had to muster myself a bit because my Adam's apple took charge a bit, and uh, it wasn't good. But anyway, I, I got a grip on myself and, um, and went and spoke to them. I remember just before uh, I spoke to them, I got a call from Northwood saying, don't speak to the press. I, man. <laughs> what do you really expect? Do you really expect me, uh, having looked them in the eye, to now walk away? Uh, and it was just, you know, it was just, this is the problem with trying to command an operation that's going on on the other side of the world. You have to 
delegate responsibility to the person on the ground to make those choices. I was determined to speak to the press and I did. Um, and it was all quite calm and straightforward. And I just said, look, you know, things didn't go, you know, we were very grateful for their help with the medevac, blah, blah, blah. And, um, and, uh, and now here we are 12,000 miles from home and uh, we're fighting to save the ship. And, um, and, and the Australians just thought that was a brilliant story. Mm. And they were so supportive. They just saw a bunch of people having a tough time, an awfully long way from home. And they, and they thought that was a good human interest story. So anyway, so, but just at the end of the press conference, um, uh, another aircraft turned up. Uh, and it was Channel 9 News. Uh, and the guy on uh, the, the reporter, uh, chap called, as it happened, his name was Harry Potter. Uh, but he, um, he'd been with me uh, in HMAS Sydney in the Gulf War as an embedded reporter. So I knew him. And he said, I'm sorry, mate, Richard, you know, how's it going, mate? I was like, better days, you know. And he said, Would you, can you, uh, he said, oh, he said, can I have an interview with you? I said, well, I've just given an interview to that lot. You know, why should you, you turned up late, Harry, you know, why should you get the scoop? And he said, oh, all right. And he said, well, can you just say the same thing to me that you said to them? I said, okay. So I did. But about halfway through it, my Adam's apple did take charge. And I had to stop. I said, right, this isn't good, is it? He said, no. He said, we don't have this. Um, we'll cut this piece of the tape and we'll just run it again when you've got a grip and we'll run the rest of it. And nobody ever need know that, um, that you had a little wobble halfway through. Again, you know, people, human beings, essentially good people. He had a story to tell. Um, he knew what was going on and, and he really handled that well, I thought. Um, and, um, you know, good on him. So that was the media. Uh, the, the Navy sent some media handler out um, and, uh, and I got fairly firmly told to shut up and, uh, and try and disappear. Um, and that was an interesting thing because, you know, a ship that's run aground doesn't disappear, you know. Um, what have we been reading about in the news the last uh, week or 10 days? Some poor bugger who's uh, <clears throat> a, a classic bit of canal effect, actually. Anybody who reads any book on, uh, on our ships behaving canals will have instant sympathy with a captain of the ever given. Um, nothing to do with a puff of wind or, or anything else. It's just physics. Uh, you cannot make that story disappear. No. So don't try. That was a story about, about people struggling in adversity and prevailing. And it's a fantastic story. And that's why we got 22 uh, uh, honours and awards out of that incident. Because people read that story and thought, bloody hell, these people are good. Mm. And they were. You know, that was a ship populated by giants, every one of them. An OM, uh, Operator Mechanic, uh, A.B. Johnson, Martin Johnson. Um, first C first job, I think, or perhaps his second C job. Anyway, uh, he was a nice lad, a rugby player, uh, one of the team, you know, good, good lad. Um, uh, and uh, in the after engine room, we needed to shore up that bulkhead because we were worried that it was going to split. So we had it, but we'd run out of people. 
uh, we'd run out of stokers who knew their way around the after engine. So we put him and uh, Lindsay and Guy Ritchie uh, in there and told them that they needed to shore up the after engine room. And uh, Chippy told them, use, use your bedding. You go, and, go and get some bedding, anything to sort of to push into the, you know, and, and try and, because water was seeping through. So I right, use bedding and a wedge and stuff. So, so uh, Guy Ritchie and, uh, and Young Johnson um, uh, fought their way in, you know, and just spent most of that night in the after engine and by themselves um, keeping the water forward and keeping it away from the from the gearboxes and all the stuff that really mattered it was a critical job i lost touch with uh, martin johnson until earlier this year when he contacted me on linkedin and i said oh you might not remember me i said how can i forget you mate you saved my after engineer what are you doing now he said oh i, I run a leadership uh, academy oh, wow. My time in the Navy made me the man I am. And he's now in his early 40s and he's a highly successful. Um, uh, he runs his own business. Um, it's one of those just fantastic stories about how, you know, it doesn't matter whether you've got a, a university degree, whether you're, uh, whether you're born with a silver spoon, uh, whether you're, whether you, whether you've fought your way up from the, wherever, the Navy gives people amazing skills and opportunities, and those guys took them. And everywhere I went in the in the rest of my career, and up until today, people come up to me and say, "Oh, I know one of your lads off for Nottingham. He stands out from the crowd." Everywhere, that's what they say. Oh, I've got one of your lads on my ship. He stands out. And, and uh, it's incredible. Mm. And 20 years on, those people still stand out. Um, that, you know, where, does it, where did it start? Did it start in the pub in Lock U? Did it start that night in Lord Howe Island? Did it start in the recruiting office? All those places had an impact on those people. And it was just brilliant. And, you know, so for me, it wasn't a great night because uh, clearly it um, had a bit of an impact on my, on my career and uh, had a pretty rough uh, time in the, in the media for a while and, you know, had a court martial and none of those things are very good. But it didn't matter a jot because I was surrounded by the most remarkable people who were incredibly loyal, uh, generous with their friendship, and they fought like lions when they needed to. What more could you ask? That's the only thing that matters. And those people are still around, still today. You know, a couple of them, we lost, we lost my Killick Steward recently to COVID. Tony Curtis, God bless him. What a wonderful guy. Um, taken early by, by that extraordinary disease, uh, virus, call it what you want. Um, you know, and I can think of a couple of others as well who, who, who are no longer with us. Um, and a couple who've had um, difficult times with post-traumatic stress. 
but all of them would you know i remember about a year later i had a visit from some bloody boffins from farnborough um human human um i don't know what they were they were scientists anyway studying and they were they wanted to know about how to abandon ship and they and i remember that one of them it was just absolutely ridiculous bloody uh thing and i told them exactly what i thought of the whole business of you know you should not you don't design a ship to make it easier to abandon that's what that was what their premise was but their second premise was the second question which i haven't forgotten was so when on that incident did anybody let you down no not one person everybody knew that they wanted to live they wanted to get on with it they were part of a team they were part of a ship they were part of something that they were incredibly proud of and they were bloody well determined they were going to sort it out and every single person in that ship i would sail with again tomorrow given uh, the given half a chance um a fantastic bunch of people who just did what needed to be done and they were just typical royal navy personnel they weren't specially selected i did not select any of them you know they were there that was what that was the raw material that we as a ship were given with those 250 people and they were all up to it so i won't have any truck with these people who say oh sailors are say not as good as they were that's absolute bollocks they are every bit as good uh, as they always have been those are the same sailors who fought at trafalgar who 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 fought in the uh, in the arctic convoys who who did uh, did ex have done extraordinary things throughout throughout uh, the history of the royal navy there's exactly the same people uh, and they're there out there today in in ships today the training's changed the technology's changed but i bet you that if you find people in a uh, in that in a in an unusual uh, and demanding situation they will respond exactly the way the ship's company of hms nottingham did on the 7th of july it was the most uh, uh, most incredible experience so for me people say what was it like you know i said well it for me it was an extraordinary privilege to have been in command of that ship at that time i wouldn't have missed it for the world i just wish it had been some other brother <laughs> it was a great thing we did well i um before we started recording you said to me that you haven't really spoken about this in a few years how how do you feel speaking about it at the moment i mean i've been quite emotional just listening to you and i know that you've been a little bit choked up at times i mean how does it feel talking about it now after so long of not i'm right back there i'm right back there brilliant yeah it's a bit dumb i'm, I'm right back there because i just remember those people and the trust they had in each other and the effort and the, and the struggle and the determination and the humor and all of those extraordinary characteristics that 
we look for in Mark people. We're all on display. And yeah, it changed my life. It changed all our lives in some way, you know, um, possibly for the better. And, um, you know, for all of us, it just changed us uh, and um, galvanized us. And, um, and, uh, and so that's why, yeah, it's always, when I used to talk to the, the Army Staff College asked me to talk to them. Um, so right in the middle of the, you know, throughout the Iraq war and the Afghan, Afghan campaign, I would turn up twice a year and talk to all the uh, Army majors and above who were on course at Camberley and then at, um, at Shrivenham. I was always quite surprised as to why, you know, when there were, must have been lots of stories that they could have, people that they could have got to talk about, you know, being in the most incredible, difficult situations uh, in, in fighting for their, you know, and being shot at. Uh, they asked a sailor to come and talk about, you know, a ship that ran aground. Uh, and they said, yes, um, the reason why we like your story is because you guys went from peacetime cruising to wartime survival in about two minutes and we're fascinated about the way in which you and your crew responded and, and try to work out why that is and that's what the lessons are for us as as as, as the military and and of course for wider life you know i've talked to i talked to all kinds of, used to talk to all kinds of organizations about this because those life lessons uh, that we talked about and have talked about this, you know, this evening, were all all come from you know from an incident like that. It's you know fascinating, really. So uh, yeah, so yeah, it's funny talking about it now. I've quite enjoyed it, actually. Absolutely. It is quite cathartic, yeah. you know. It's a bloody good story. It is you a know, good story. It's about bloody good people, you know. There's no villains in there, not one, you know. Uh, you know, it's just about man fighting against the sea, you know, uh, and prevailing. How glorious. And you mentioned, you mentioned life lessons. What do you think is the biggest life lesson that you took away from it? Gosh. Mm, teamwork. Definitely teamwork. We had subject matter experts. We knew we used each other as we needed to, to get the job done. So uh, just because I had more stripes didn't mean that I was the um, expert. Those guys, all those uh, divers, um, electricians, everybody, people with every different skill. Mean Chef Bullpit with his bacon sarnies at four in the morning. We're back to my little talk about theatre and how everybody fits together and how you need everybody to, to, to play their part. And not everybody has a starring role. Uh, and it doesn't matter because everybody has a part to play. And otherwise, and if, and it, and it, otherwise the, thing, the machine doesn't work. And, um, and so I think for me, the real life lesson was you rely on other people and you need to understand their strengths and you need to work to be able to work together with them and um, and and where they are giants and you are not then push them to the front and they'll be giants and i had 250 giants on there and you you said that you still keep in contact with quite a lot of the yeah the guys. Um, there's a guy called uh, al murrell 
was Killick, Killick, uh, Killick Sparker. Absolutely mad as a fish. Uh, a lovely, lovely man. Uh, I think he's still a Killick after all these years. Uh, and, um, and he is the most reliable and, um, and um, you know, unassuming guy. And he runs the Facebook page. And he has done it, you know, just doggedly and determinedly for all these years. And, 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 and we all know he's mad and we all love him dearly for it. And he does it really well. And he's organising the reunions and he's done, a, he's done a few things, you know. And it, yeah, isn't that fantastic? He is a giant amongst men. I don't care um, that he's, you know, in professional terms, he didn't make it to um, to warrant officer. Who cares? He is a giant amongst men. Mm. So, and and, and they're all over the place. Uh, and um, you know, majority now, of course, are outside doing other things. You know, thriving in life. Um, I'm still in touch with Terry Lendrum. Uh, you know, I'm still in touch with most of them in one way or another. Um, and they're all doing great things. Um, and they're all proud of their association with Nottingham. And they're all proud to be part of that little group. And, um, and we're getting together. Uh, next year is the 20th anniversary. Mm. And Al Murrell's been organising it for a while. <laughs> oh, blimey. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm going to have to make sure I take a week's leave after it. <laughs> yeah. and ha have you ever been back? Or would you ever go back? Oh, I'd love to go back. Yeah, yeah, I, uh, yeah. Um, no, I haven't been back. I nearly went. Uh, they called uh, the guys, the people in Lord Howe invited me back um, about 10 years on. But I couldn't go for some reason. There was some, uh, you know, I just couldn't get away from, from, from work. Uh, I've been back to Australia. Um, in fact, the last time I went back was the last time I spoke about this. Uh, it was about 18 months ago, actually. They, the Australian Navy made a film about leadership and in the context of, uh, of uh, adversity. And they made it, it, there were two incidents that they chose. One was uh, the near, very near loss uh, of an Australian Collins class submarine where a valve burst and they, they went well below the designed diving depth and were going down and they all thought they were gonna die. They didn't, they got it back. And the other was the Nottingham incident. And so they flew me out to Australia and uh, we made a film. And it was an extraordinary thing. It was me and the guy, the captain of, uh, of the submarine, lovely, lovely man who I knew a little bit anyway, professionally called Peter Scott. And we just sat and talked about our experiences. And then the best bit was um, one of my lads from the Nottingham had joined the Australian Navy. He was a PO, he was a POWE. Um, he joined the Royal Australian Navy. And they promoted him to lieutenant commander because he was so bloody good. Yeah. And they found him and he'd been, he was serving out in the West in uh, Perth. They flew him to Sydney to see me. Oh, that's amazing. 
that was emotional. Yeah. That was fantastic. Yeah. Doesn't get any better, does it? You know, that's 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 why we do this. You know, and uh, the most fantastic thing. And I'm very very privileged to have um, to have, you know serve with those people. Um, and had those opportunities and made those friends and um, and managed to hang on to them. Absolutely. Hello. Absolutely. And I, I mean, I feel so privileged to have been able to have you on this episode to to talk about this. I mean, it's to be honest, I'm not, I don't really have a lot of words. Um, <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> I'm just a bit, <laughs> I'm quite blown away and it's just remarkable. And so, I think something that's going to stick with me for a long time is what you said about when you were on the bridge and you just got her off the rock and uh, you turned around and everyone was looking at you saying, you know, come on, sir, what do we do next? And how that, how that fent felt. I mean, I just couldn't ever imagine being in that position. And I think that's probably, but, but it's interesting, uh, Jenna, because that's what, that must be why the story resonates with people. And that must be why I ended up, you know, talking to the army staff course, because everybody would have, well, what would I have done? Mm. And then people, and I used to talk to a CO Desert course and all these courses and people, and people come up to me afterwards, just, and just, just like this and say, I don't know what I'd have done. And I know what the answer is though, Jenna, you would have done exactly what I did. You'd have just got on with it. Because you do, your training kicks in. You know, the, the Navy is, and the armed forces are really, really good at selecting people with, with, some, with a bit of grit and a bit of determination and a bit of persistence. I don't give up easily at anything. I can't think of anybody who does in, 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 in this line of work. So when the chips are down, right, what are we going to do? Shall we all give up and go and drown? Fuck it. I think I'm going to do better than that. I'm going to do something. Because if I start the ball rolling, it might actually roll my way. Mm. You know, stop dithering, make a decision, get on with it. You know, we just got on and did it. And then things started to go our way. Yeah. So, but I, I know what you mean. It is, a, it is, you know, every, but I think your reaction is, is quite, everybody's reaction is the same. It's, crikey, I wonder what I would have done. Yeah. But my, my answer is always the same. Don't worry. You would have done you would have done something. You'd have probably done the same as I did, because it wasn't much choice. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've seen I've seen the the list as well of um reward, awards and recognition. Yeah, the recognition. Yeah, it's it's just remarkable. No, it's amazing. Yeah. Such an amazing yeah. thing. And as I said to you before, you know, I meant before we started recording, I've obviously heard about Nottingham heard the story seen the IBO boards on ISK and things like that but to hear it from you is just overwhelming um so thank you and and I think the listeners will <laughs> feel exactly the same that this is just a remarkable story and I'm just so glad that you shared it my pleasure my pleasure I've enjoyed it <laughs>